Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, and for the next few weeks, too, we're doing something a little different on the podcast. We're bringing you one-off conversations with interesting people writing about interesting things, from human evolution and education to dissident art and Roman history. This episode, we're joined by Cullen Murphy, who's written a charming book, Cartoon County, about his rather unconventional childhood growing up the son of a cartoonist. His dad, John Cullen Murphy, drew a comic that has been running since 1937, which makes it the world's longest-running adventure strip, Prince Valiant. And it turns out, when you're a cartoonist's kid, life is pretty adventurous, too, especially if you grow up amidst all your dad's cartoonist friends and they all live in the same neighborhood. Cullen is joining us from Boston, not far from the Connecticut County where it all happened, to talk about the golden age of make-believe. Thanks for being here, Cullen. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. So your book is a memoir, but it's it's also a biography of your dad and a history, really, of the comics trade for much of the century. And uh, you open the book with this anecdote that I think pretty well sums up how unusual your childhood was in a lot of ways. So would you mind telling us about your uh, first after-school job? Well, you would see my job if you were ever at my house because we have bags and boxes of Polaroid pictures. And these were pictures that my dad took of himself or had his kids take of him. I recently did a calculation and figured that in the course of his life, my father probably drew 100,000 human figures in the comic strips that he did. Wow. That's a lot. And although he was a very fine artist and had a classical artistic education, it's a lot easier when you have to do a comic strip and you're doing all these figures to have something to work with. And it's easier to get the light and shadow right. It's easier to get the drapery falling correctly. So in his studio, he had lots of costumes he had women's wigs, he had dresses, he had armor, he had spears, and he would dress himself up and do the action that he knew that he was going to have to draw. And frequently, when I got home from school, I would be detailed to go out to the studio and stand on a ladder and take Polaroid pictures. 
And I've got all of these. There are thousands of them. And they, they run basically from the early 1950s up to his death in 2004. I just, I don't know if there's any repository of photographs of a single human being of this nature anywhere in the world. Yeah, that's really something. It, it sounds like it was a lot of fun to grow up in that environment. Yes, it was a lot of fun. And it was unusual and it was bohemian. Remember, though, if you're 12 years old and you're just coming home from school, the last thing that you want to do is, is be told, you've got to go out and help your father. And so there, there was that aspect of things. That said, the minute that you got out there, it was another world. He had all kinds of interesting books around. He would have gotten interesting mail. He was drawing pictures. He always had a movie on on the, on the TV if it was wintertime and a, a baseball game if it was summertime. And there were just lots of conversations. You know, those kind of conversations that are aimless, the, the kind that just grow out of ordinary life. Those meandering daily conversations do an awful lot for you. Right, right. And I think the really unusual thing, too, about that environment is that your dad was not the only one around doing that. It was really kind of normal because there were a lot of cartoonists in Fairfield County, Connecticut. Can you tell us who some of them were and like how they all ended up in the same place? Well, that's that's the thing. You know, for for a period of time when I was younger, it didn't really occur to me that there were lots of other people out in the world who did radically different things because so much of our circle was cartoonists. In Fairfield County, starting in the late 40s and up through the 70s into the 80s, there were probably 100 cartoonists who lived in our neck of the woods, you know, say within 30 miles of our house. And that's a lot of people. You know, many of them were comic strip cartoonists. Some of them were gag cartoonists for, you know, The New Yorker and other publications. Some of them did comic books. And they had assembled there for a bunch of reasons that all came together at once. Most of these people had been in the war. When the war was over, they, they were either starting careers as artists or resuming careers. They were starting families. The business was centered on Manhattan, but many people didn't want to raise their children in Manhattan. So they were looking further afield. Fairfield County at that time was cheap. You know, nowadays, it's the Gold Coast. Back then, it was a lot of open country, and you could buy a house and raise your kids and do it on a relatively modest salary. And you'd had artists and literary people moving out to Connecticut for decades, you know, in the earlier part of the 20th century. So there was already a bit of a nucleus there. So who were some of your dad's friends? I mean, reading through the opening sections of your book, I mean, your whole book is like a who's who of 20th century cartoons. I'll start with Mort Walker. Mort is still alive. He's in his early 90s. His first strip was Beetle Bailey, and then he did High and Lois, and then he added a number of other strips. And working closely with Mort on High and Lois and then going off onto his own with Hagar the Horrible was... Dick Brown, a cartoonist that children in particular liked. Dick was unkempt, you know, a shirt tail always sticking out. He was ursine. He was very funny. 
He loved being around kids. He was always drawing something for me or one of my brothers or sisters or anyone else that he happened to, to meet. In my mind, he you know, typifies some of the best about, about being a cartoonist. Uh, Stan Drake drew The Heart of Juliet Jones, which was a dramatic strip, I guess kind of a melodramatic strip. It was a soap opera in many ways. He was an extraordinary artist. He also was able to mimic the style of other artists. And I, I remember when my father, in the early 60s, got pneumonia, and uh, Stan Drake stepped in and did my father's strip, which at the time was Big Ben Bolt, for about a month. I, I recall being in the hospital room at, at uh, Greenwich Hospital. My father had an oxygen tent around his head. And Stan Drake coming in with a whole bunch of Bristol board panels with Big Ben Bolt cartoons on them. And um, he left them off with my father. You know, they looked very much like what my father would have done, except that the women were much prettier. <laughs> I mean, those strips are all really different, as you just described. Was the prep for these comics the same? Like, did the artists all have the same kind of process for all of these strips, or were they as different as the kinds of comics they were? There were a bunch of different processes, and it really did vary depending on the kind of strip that you drew. So let's say you have a funny strip. These were known as Bigfoot strips. So if you had one of those, you know, the characters that you're using, generally, you know, there are six or eight or 12 who show up pretty regularly. You don't have to worry about what the characters are going to look like. It's the same, you know, every single day. What you really do need to worry about is what the joke is. And some cartoonists had a system. Mort Walker had four or five or six people who would come in once a month, and they would brainstorm for the whole day. Everybody would bring ideas. They would rank them. And by the time the day was over and it was time for cocktails, they would have everything plotted out for the next month or so. So that was one way of doing it. But others, you know, free associated. Uh, Dick Brown sometimes would do nothing other than he would take a sheet of white paper and he'd put a black dot in the middle of it and he would stare at the black dot. He swore that doing that would give him a gag eventually. <laughs> um, other people would, you know, lie down and just think. And it was very hard to persuade someone else that, you know, I'm actually working here. Now, when it came to adventure strips, it was a, another matter for two reasons. One is you had to come up with a plot that lasted for a long period of time. You know, it could be for, you know, six weeks. So that, that involved a lot of planning. And the other thing was characters were changing all the time. The new villains, the new heroes, the new people that you're going to feel sympathy for, whatever it happens to be, they're, they're changing all the time. And then you also have to think about the scenery. You know, where is the story taking place? And that may require some, some research. So when you had a dramatic strip, you had, you had a, a series of needs that were very different from those that were involved with a gag strip. Right. And I feel like you have a particular lens on this because, plot twist, you helped your dad with the script for Prince Valiant for about three decades. So how did, how did that happen? <laughs> 
It was kind of a fluke. I never thought that I would be doing it. I had my own ideas about what I would do in life. But after my father took over the, the drawing of Prince Valiant from Hal Foster, who started the strip in 1937 and was a magnificent man, and after my dad took over from him in 1970, it certainly was on the back of my mind to wonder if at some point it might be fun to work with my dad if Hal decided that he ever wanted to give up the writing. Well, at some point, Hal decided that he did want to give up the writing. And prior to that, I had tried my hand coming up with stories for him. I wasn't breaking them down the way you need to for a strip. They were just narrative ideas, and I would send them to Hal, and he began using them. So that was good. And eventually, as it, as it became clear that he was looking to uh, give up the writing, I began trying to do it more seriously. And the first results were absolutely disastrous. <laughs> I remember a a dinner with with Hal. The dinner was ostensibly a social dinner, but I knew what was going to be happening was that he was going to deliver the verdict on a series of of stories that I'd given to him and which I tried to do it his way. And so we had our dinner. Of course, I was just terribly nervous because I was waiting for the verdict that I knew was coming. And the verdict was was um, was unfortunate from my point of view because he said uh, what I had done was no good. And his words were literally no good. I can just hear him in that flat, elegant Canadian accent saying no good. It, there was just no no attempt to sugarcoat it. But then he went on and explained why they didn't work and what the flaws were and what I needed to do differently. And it was a real education to see how his mind worked and also to see the larger uh, lessons for writing strips of any kind. He was, he was very patient about this, and it was a, it was a, a true gift. So how long did it, did it take, I guess, for you to take over? What were the, the lessons you had to learn about writing a comic strip compared to, you know, having spent many decades reading them? So here's one thing. Probably it's the most basic thing of all, and that is words and pictures have to function as a one-two punch. They are not captions for the pictures. You know, after all, if you've got a picture, you don't need to say what the picture is showing. And as Hal said, and as, you know, as comic uh, scholars have pointed out, the most important space in a strip is the space between the panels, in the gutter, because that's where the reader is making things happen in her or his mind. And a great deal happens there, just because of the way in which the pictures have been situated and the way in which the text has been done. So figuring out that one-two punch was was absolutely crucial. Did you see your work, I guess your scripting over those 30 years, and then your dad's work prior to that change at all over the course of the century? The main thing that changed was simply the size of the strip. Way back when Prince Valiant started, it was on a full newspaper page, a little less than two feet by a little less than three feet. You know, that's huge, and it was in, in beautiful color, and you had great scope to be able to do an awful lot of things. 
You know, you could have a panel that had 20 people in it, and they would all be recognizable. Now, over time, as newspapers shrank and as the comics whole shrank inside of newspapers, you had to be able to adapt. Things had to become a little bit less complicated. And that, you know, over time took a toll on comic strips of all sorts. You know, for one thing, the the, the comics, the funny pages, didn't present themselves any longer as this glorious extra section in a newspaper. The Sunday comic sections began to, you know, get smaller. What was 16 pages when I was growing up, you know, would become eight and then four. And inside those pages, the strips that maybe had taken up a third of a page began taking up, you know, a fifth and then an eighth. And even though I understand why newspapers were doing this, it was a case where the lack of investment in the product ended up doing some damage to the product over time. Yeah, it it seems like comics were and cartoons were eclipsed by a lot of different things over the course of the century, including, you know, the ascendancy of photography and printing photographs. Um, but it, it does seem like recently, in the past couple decades, maybe two or three, that graphic novels, at least, have sort of been on the ascendancy. I mean, we have like Art Spiegelman winning the Pulitzer with Mouse, and then a whole array of like critically acclaimed books have come out in the past two decades, like Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis, Chris Ware's work, Cake Thompson, Sandman. Uh, Do you see that on the rise? And and I guess, do you keep up with the state of, of cartoons today? I keep up with the state of cartoons in a general sense, but I agree with you absolutely you know, about what is happening. You know, there's, some, there's something that's very elemental about the combination of words and pictures. People like it. You don't need special training when someone puts words and pictures in front of you and, and says, you know, can you make any sense of this? Is this too much for you? No, nobody says that. Everybody likes this combination. And... The comic strips in the you know fifties, sixties, and seventies, and I would say the comic strips also at the turn of the of the century in the in the teens and twenties and thirties, were a remarkable manifestation of this, showing how you could, you know, combine words and pictures for a mass audience, in a way, that achieved something that was really kind of spectacular when you when you look at how many people they reached, the quality of the work. Um, you know, the wonderful technology, as it seemed at the time, that was able to produce this in color and get it to, you know, tens of millions of people every every Sunday. So now we have a situation where technology of other kinds has caused one particular form to wither and grow old. Um, it's not dead, and there are still many wonderful strips. But graphic novels have arisen in this space. And if you go to any big comic store nowadays, you'll just see shelves and shelves and shelves of graphic novels. And many of them are superb. And fundamentally, they are doing the same thing as as comic strips were doing. Some of them are far more sophisticated than you ever could have done in a mass medium like a newspaper. And 
uh, and I, I believe that the, you know, the future of this art form, transmuted as it is into graphic novels, is actually very bright. If it's been a few too many years since you set sights on Hagar the Horrible or Prince Valiant, there are dozens and dozens of gorgeous illustrations and comic strips in Cullen Murphy's book, Cartoon County, which features a whole array of sketches from the cartoon luminaries of the past century, including Norman Rockwell. We'll see you next week for an exploration of the science of human creativity with an unexpected neuroscientist-composer duo. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.